this has been fun to be a part of. This has been great. I mean, I think you guys are hitting on something, uh, a piece of territory that that hasn't really, I haven't heard of it being explored very much. We've got a couple of zoo, uh, zoo and aquarium field type um, podcasts out there, but I, I haven't seen any that are heard of any that are dedicated to diversity and the issues that y'all are are seemingly trying to to get hold of. So I, I, my hats off to you guys. Keep it going. We'll see how it lands, <laughs> right? Right. That's a that's a that's a great a great uh, intro for this for, for for the exhibit where we have uh, uh, extraordinary conversations with extraordinary people. So yeah, Craig, uh, right. thank you for for uh, doing a part two and uh, <laughs> and uh, I wanna uh, I wanna circle back to our first conversation and where it ended. You were you were you were having this pivotal conversation with one of your college professors. Yep. And and it was like it, it was at the time where we were having all the technology issues. But I remember you were like, "Can you finish that story?" Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm happy to. No, I actually I actually spoke to her. Uh, fortunately, I found her on Facebook of all things. Because, geez, man, Dr. Austin Mills must be pushing eighty by now. Um, but she to look at her, you wouldn't think she was uh, she was there. But, geez, I was that. That experience was my sophomore year in college, and that would have been 1994. Uh, so yeah, that was that was 30 years ago. Yeah. So she she couldn't have been any younger than 50 at that time. Yeah. Uh, so she she must be right around the 80 year mark. Uh, man, she's awesome. But she, I asked her if she minded me talking about her or using her as an example, and. Uh, she she wrote me back a very nice very nice letter of how much that meant uh to her to to have had that kind of impact so i i'd love to talk about her uh she's she's one of my heroes she's awesome love her yeah well what way to pick it up when yante comes back i heard that i hear y'all i can hear (laughs) y'all well so i don't need to repeat it go ahead craig all right Right. So, uh, so I, I think, I believe, um, we left it off with that. I was in my sophomore year at North Carolina state university, uh, which is a PWI. And, um, I don't think a lot of our, uh, it's for Craig, the PWI. That's a lot of our, our colleagues don't even recognize what PWI stands for. Um, we are familiar with the term HBCU or a lot of us are. Uh, but the historically black colleges and universities are what we try to tap into when we look for our diverse audience. But we can't forget that the PWIs, which stands for primarily white institutions, your larger universities, uh, well, most universities and colleges other than HBCUs uh, are, are usually classified as PWIs, which have an overwhelmingly larger white base of students uh, than they do other racial minorities. Um, the schools, I, geez, I'll go out on a limb and say probably none of them are exclusively white. I I would think that would, that would have made the news somewhere. Uh, however, um, it's not, it's not, I don't want to say it's not always enough to just say, Hey, we let anybody join into our group, but it's awfully hard as a student of color at a PWI in certain aspects. Those aspects would be mostly social. 
mostly, mostly, I mean, I guess you could go so far as to say even self-imposed. When you're sitting in a classroom and you are often the only student of color, if not, you're, you're often the only black student, you know, who, and you feel like you're just alienated. You don't, you just feel like you don't belong. So it just makes it extra hard, you know, um, but I remember sitting in my classes and I was a, a black student. Well, I, I am a black man, but I was a black student in a program that was almost exclusively white. I was in animal science pre-vet. So again, going, that kind of plays into the whole STEM idea and the whole, where we weren't really encouraged. We, I don't think we're overwhelmingly encouraged to, to join STEM communities. And so, uh, I was one of two black students in the, in the animal science program, myself and a, and a young woman. We're still friends to this day. Andrea is her name. And, uh, and I, we're, we're funny, funny, funny pair. But we were in the same classes, obviously. We're in the same program. And um, and during my sophomore year, uh, I remember Dr. Alston Mills, the black professor at, at NC State. Uh, this was my anatomy, anatomy and physiology of farm animals course. She asked me one morning, she said, Mr. Sappho, can you please stay after class? And, you know, you never want to be, you never want to hear that. Be anybody who, who, who has a black mother <laughs> or knows a black mother. When they say something like that, you're just like, oh, Jesus, okay. So I didn't know at that point if I had fallen asleep, if I had offended her somehow or what. She just said, Mr. Sappho, stay after class. And so my only response could be, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'll stay after class. <laughs> right, what else you got to Right, right. You know, I don't, I know what I don't want to give is shoe upside my neck, right? Uh, so uh, she had me stay after, and uh, and I will try to recreate this conversation mainly because, and I, I don't mean to, to put off any any anybody who's white who's listening to this but there's a certain atmosphere that exists when you're having these conversations that's what's missing out of pwi is that feeling like at an hbcu it wouldn't be nothing for somebody to call you out in the middle of class i'm sure and and, and just dress you down you know for whatever but uh you know when i've got professors who are largely who i almost feel like they're i'm invisible to them um when I have the eye of a professor, it's both intimidating and comforting at the same time because I feel like I'm seen, but I don't know if I want to be seen, you know, because I think I'm about to get in trouble. So Dr. Austin Mill stopped me and she says, so why are you taking my class? And I recall saying, because I want to become a veterinarian, but why are you taking my class? And I, she asked me that like three or four times, and I, I really had no idea where she was going with it. And so finally, I just said, I, I don't I don't know what you want me to say. And she said, are you are you going to become a veterinarian? And I said, yes. Well, why do you want to become a veterinarian? So it was just these questions, like really trying to question me as far as what are you doing with your life? And I finally I said, I don't I don't know. Am I am I doing poorly in your class? Am I, are you trying to give me? She said, No, you're doing fine, but you seem bored. And I said, um, I, I don't want to offend this woman and tell her that I'm bored. And so she knew I was kind of trying to beat around the bush of not giving her a straight answer. And she said, look, she said, I understand that you love animals, but do you love medicine? Mm. And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, you are going to be the worst veterinarian in the history of veterinarians. Uh, and I, you know, and when somebody comes at you with real talk, mm. 
and you're a sophomore in college and you thought you were on this track to to be big britches you know veterinarian uh they take you down a peg and it's not until later that you realize how valuable that is uh because she she didn't just take me down a peg she took me down a peg in order to help me build myself up uh because at the same time she was deflating me she said you know veterinary veterinary medicine is not the only career she said you you need to love medicine to appreciate being a veterinarian your patients will just happen to be animals so you do need to like animals but you need to love medicine and i had no love in my heart for medicine still don't you know i'll tell my veterinarians this now i don't understand the medical jargon y'all speak and the stuff that's not where my passion lies. That's what you guys do. You guys geek out about the medications and the the, the drugs that you're given and this, that, and the other. I just love animals. So she she broke it down for me. And she asked me a series of questions about like what drives me? Why do I love animals so much? Everything that I had said to her had everything to do with animal behavior. And so she said, you are interested in animal behavior. Have you ever thought of a husbandry career? I had never heard that word before. As a, as a sophomore in college, I had never been exposed to the word animal husbandry. Um, but this woman spent the time to peel back the onion, you know, uh, figure out who Craig is, who, and in a conversation that was about 20 minutes long, you know, and she, and she was able to use her expertise and knowledge of the fields, a uh, uh, field of animal care and animal work to help at least introduced the idea to me so it goes goes to the conversations that we had about you know exposure to careers and getting exposed by the right people too because anybody could could have told me you if you love animals go this way or do this but for her to spend the time to get to know me and break it down for me um was was super impactful and then she followed it up with um what i didn't realize is that nc state university and the university of maryland the agriculture and life science schools are effectively sister schools. Uh, So she knew a lot of her colleagues at the University of Maryland, where she had worked prior. Um, And so through her connections at the University of Maryland, she knew of, uh, it wasn't a true internship, it was a grant that was here at the the National Zoo. And she not only uh, suggested I go for it, and again, this is that key piece of having people who who kind of, who identify with your background? And he said, "Now you're uh, you're going to apply for this opportunity because if you don't, you're stupid." Yeah, you know, she said, because I will write you a letter of recommendation, and and this is where kind of that motherly that that other the, what that family can yeah yep. can't really understand. Mm-hmm. Never been in the shoes of somebody who who blesses you down and mm-hmm. those stupid tells you you haven't you have not thought about your life. But then says, now come here, mm-hmm. you know, let me show you what you mm-hmm. need to do. And let me, let me help you realize that you are capable and that you can do this. And she wrote me a letter of recommendation and it ended up getting uh, the attention of ultimately the curator of, of uh, big cats here at the zoo. Oh, wow. Time, who is a, um, uh, uh, a, he's, he's. Pretty well known. Lar- I would I would stop short of saying famous in in our field uh, for his work with big cats. I and mean, he was the curator of big cats. And he called me because, of course, this was 1994. Mm-hmm. 
uh, he called me and asked me to come up for an internship uh, for that for that position. Um, and it was it 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 was that was it for me. He didn't just bring me up. He brought me up to work on a very specific project, which was working with domestic cats. But he did tell me that in the in the meantime, because that wasn't going to take up all of my time, he was going to put me working with the newly hired at that time uh, biologists over the cheetahs at the zoo. Um, when I got to the zoo, I found out that, that biologist is a black man. Um, so there is intentional thought there. There was intentional thought there. I, I have never sat. So the, the professor who helped me was Dr. Austin Mills. The curator who brought me on was Dr. John Seidensticker. Uh, some, some of the old school people might recognize his name if they're listening to this. Um, Seidensticker put me in touch with Stuart Wells, um, and had me working directly with Stuart. You cannot, I've never sat down with Side and Sticker to ask him if it was blatantly intentional that he put me with Stuart. Mm-hmm. He knew I was a black student, mm-hmm. but you cannot convince me that it wasn't partly intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, that having the foresight to put the black student with the black biologist, and it, mm-hmm. it did not for a minute feel like tokenism or exactly, uh, I was in word. Yeah, it was. It was intentional, mm-hmm. but it was also Stuart was the biologist of cheetahs. And mm-hmm. I had written in my letter to Seidensticker that I want to work with big cats. Big cats are what I want to work with. That's my mm-hmm. that's my hope, my dream, my goal, my everything at this point. And mm-hmm. he put me with someone who a person of color, not not even just a person of color, but he put me with another black man mm-hmm. who was doing what I professed to want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that is where I got extremely lucky. And I, I honestly, I did not realize it at the time. Probably didn't realize it until about maybe five or six years ago. It, mm-hmm. After after this career is under my belt, that holy smokes, this mm-hmm. is done intentionally to give me the best chance for success. So that's where I say to folks that I might be one of the very, very, very lucky ones mm-hmm. who was set up intentionally to succeed. Um, now I, I will say that you could be set up as much as you want. If you don't grab the rings and take hold of it, you're not going to succeed, but that can be said of anybody, no matter what the race, gender, anything is. Um, but it's, it's awfully encouraging to me that 30 years ago, people were thinking of this. So it's, I tell that big, long story because we chatted for a little bit about how to get through to some senior leaders. Um, well, maybe think intentional about how to intentionally set people up for success uh, where you can, and it doesn't always work. So if if you're sitting at a zoo in and and you have no students of color, no employees of color that you can directly point to, do you know of someone who that who you can connect that student with? Even if the internship is done with you and your white colleagues, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Or in the industry from the white colleague, but connect with someone who looks and sounds like you. You know, uh, can can you just call me? Can they mm-hmm. call me? Yeah. Can they talk to me? Can they just yeah. have a friendly face? Yeah. Uh, so that that's perhaps a potential strategy. And everything's not going to work out. It's not always ever going to work out. Uh, but it. Okay. it can we can we go back to the moment the professor had the conversation with you? 
Do you think that because she represented a cultural comfort for you, something very familiar, and there is, you know, when you have the familiarity, there's a trust, right? Especially in the Black community, it's like, hey, there's a certain way that we are raised to understand and respect our elders, to see mothering. I mean, even if you go to like the motherland, like, you know, you have your mother, your aunties are actually like your mother figures. It's like the same kind of hierarchy of respect, trust, endearment. Do you feel like um, if someone who didn't look like you had that conversation that you would have pivoted um, or you would have seen it as a, as a, as a, kind of like an undermining of your skills and your talents. Cause I, I, I immediately like put myself in your shoes and I was like, Hmm, if it were, if the professor maybe didn't look like me, I may see it as a, are you saying that I'm not performing? Are you, you know? And so I just kind of wonder like, if that's another instance where like representation really matters. Cause you can see my managers, my team, they, they look like me they're black men. They understand, like they understand what you're talking about, the black mama culture they understand that they receive that they understand that they see that in me when I um am having stern conversations they understand what I'm communicating but someone else may see that a different way so if that professor did not look like you that representation and had that profound conversation in the cultural lingo that she did do you think that you would have followed a different path great point I could easily have seen that because I, when I told that story, I told it in a, um, in, in the, the, the kind of the fast version of it, but she knocked it down. She said, Oh, baby. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you, you, oh, you are so down the wrong track, you know? And I could easily see that a white professor saying that to me or anything akin to that to me, I could have easily received that as, Oh, you're saying I can't do it. You're saying I can't be. A veterinarian, um, when that's not what she was saying at all, and, and that's I, if even a, a well-intentioned white professor, I I might receive it like that. So that's a it's a it's a delicate road to try to traverse, um, and I can appreciate how delicate it is. Um, but that's where getting to know your people coming into play. Uh, if you're going to try to mentor me, um, you know, have some foundation for mentoring me. You know, where what's What's the connection that we have? There's a built-in connection when you look or sound like me that, that you know, certainly I, I can think of some ways that, that Black folks come into me saying that could really offend me or put me off. Um, just because the connection exists doesn't mean it's going to be an automatic slam dunk relationship. But this woman and I hit it off really well. She She clearly was used to mentoring students. And she, she knew exactly what she was talking about. She saw, she saw that I wasn't going to succeed going down the road that I was headed down. And for whatever reason, she took the interest to say, okay, um, whether it was, I'm not going to let you fail easily because I don't want to see a young black man fail easily. Or if it was, oh, this kid is so stupid. He doesn't recognize what's going on and somebody needs to give him a chance. But that I think is true of any of our students that we try to approach. Is I can think of some you know students who who I would I'd love to work with. Uh, I have loved working with. And then I can think of some students who I could not get their attention to save my life. And I I would love to have found somebody who could reach them. Uh, so yeah, I I do think that if it were the wrong person, and and certainly 
it would have been much easier for that wrong person to have been a white person to come in to say that to me. Uh, so very delicate, delicate road. That was one of my my favorite exchanges. I'm, that was an excellent point, Yante. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if I could have said that better, but I felt that I felt that piece. Yeah, I mean, like, really, my, the message like representation is so crucial and so critical. Um, there is a different. The differences are what make us culturally rich, right? Everybody's mm. culturally rich. There things um being in the area that i live being a black mother if i take my black mama face to work in a conversation i can be perceived as oh yante's upset you can feel the tension in the room you know if i take my black mama conversation to jay and tony they giggle they giggle because they understand where i'm coming from and that i'm serious about it and i've had that experience with my daughter's friends who are predominantly some of them are predominantly white they grew up with me so they unlike they understand what I'm talking about. Like they adjust it. Don't come in my house, close the door. Don't let my AC out. Don't let my air out. They understand what that means now. Because <laughs> every 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 time you say Craig or on this, how do you hear? I hear somebody's mama on Friday. Craig. <laughs> I tried to sit up. I okay. Okay, Craig. Craig, it might be a truck. You ain't got to lie, Craig. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. These <laughs> we have a um a young woman when uh. Oh, whoops. Uh, we had a young woman who worked here. And just to just to give people the a a piece of some of the cultural, the significance of being in tune culturally, uh, we had a woman who back when petty cash was a thing, she was our petty cash officer. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how long ago it was. Um, she was a black woman. Her name was Bernetta Johnson. And um and whenever we would have to go to do petty cash, a lot of my colleagues, who were majority white, would come back and say, oh, Vernetta, she's so mean, she's so nasty, she hates me. And I'd say, I don't have any problems with her. And they'd say, well, that's because she likes you. You know, at that time, I was a 20-something. She's like, because you're a cute little, you know, whatever. So, no, I said, maybe it's because I call her Miss Johnson when I'm out there. She, I don't call her Vernetta. You know, that's, that's just... Yeah. I, something that you do you know yeah. know you yeah well enough to call you by your out by your first name uh really? so that but it's those little little things and it, i truly do not feel like it was because i was black that she didn't have a problem with me i think it was because i showed her a level of respect that she was used to getting uh and she expected and when you give her that level of respect you're on her list <laughs> you you know what? That's interesting, Craig. Because when I think about my career, um, and when I ha whenever I have worked with, right alongside other Black women, mm -hmm. I've always addressed them as Miss in front of meetings or whatever mm -hmm. by their first name, Miss Miss Faye, Miss mm -hmm. Val, Miss mm -hmm. Pinky, and they understand. And it's very interesting because um, if they're not black or brown woman i i i will do it. no i don't yeah it, it's almost uh it's it's like autopilot right it's like the moment i i recognize that hierarchy it's like miss this miss this miss this forever um and you started with a ma'am <laughs> yep i actually i don't know if you caught it but i called you ma'am you gotta take on on all of the questions you got like uh for it, 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 yeah, it, 
but it's it's that combination of things. It's so I'm I was raised in North Carolina by two black parents mm-hmm. uh, in the South, and my family was military. Um, so it's a couple of things, and I get yelled at a lot by our our uh, PhDs and stuff because I'll you, you recognize when someone has an earned title, and mm-hmm. her for if it's a if it's a doctor if it's a if it's a Mister or Miss or Mrs. And um, either way, it's you earned your title, and the title doesn't have to be earned just in school. Sometimes the title is earned by life. You are well said about. You know what you're. That Craig, because a couple of our apprentices, um, I started calling me ma'am. I'm like, stop calling me that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're good black men, um, younger black men. And it's like, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And so like, you give me permission not to. <laughs> and even then, I'm still, I tell people all the time, they say, don't call me ma'am. I'm like, it's it's by habit. You know, I mean, Mississippi grandma said, you always address a woman by ma'am, no ma'am, right? Mrs. Mr. Like in, until until you otherwise, that's how you, you keep that relationship going. So yeah, that resonates. You know. Craig, well, I just want to catch a, a real quick reel or just a real quick clip of the uh, AMZAT internship. So the idea would be that we start, we give you guys as the on the ground uh, SSA employees who are who have even a, a slight interest in the possibility of doing animal care work, uh, we want to give you an idea of what it's like to do animal care work. So it would be a working apprenticeship. It would be the idea would not be that you're gonna you're gonna come in, you're gonna do an essay and a project, uh, a, a, an academic project to get this done. The idea would be that you would come in, get a couple of hours under your belt working directly with the animal care staff um you you won't be doing things probably like training lions or anything like that uh but you might be working right alongside the people who are training the lions you might be making the food for the lions you know and i'm using lions as an example because that's what i take care of um so you might be working with us you might be going out and picking up the feces and looking through the yards but you'll also be learning things like how we do our safety checks, why we do our safety checks, how to take care of that animal beyond just feeding it. You would learn things like we're not just feeding them meat because they like meat. We're feeding them meat because they're obligate carnivores and they can't digest plant material. And you'll find out why they can't digest plant material. So you'll learn through doing the job. You know, uh, you'll learn like an apprentice would. You'll learn just like any welder, any plumber would learn how to do their work. Um, because there are things you just simply cannot learn through a, through a textbook. You have to learn it from the people who, who are doing it. Um, and we want to give the opportunity to the people who are showing that they are invested in the zoos and aquariums. So if you're working with SSA, you're working in a zoo and aquarium. You're, you're invested in there. Um, we're hoping that you don't just work here to earn a couple dollars. We're hoping that you work here to earn a career potentially. Uh, and those are the people who we're looking for to come into this program. Uh, program would be open to anybody who is interested. Uh, so it doesn't matter what your level of, of school is. Doesn't matter if you're if you're on the low end of school or on the high end of school. Um, you know, we we were are looking into ways to making sure that people are stipend appropriately. 
uh, for doing this. And that's one of the benefits that you get for working with a group like SSA. SSA has got your back. They've got you supported in trying to make this move forward, uh, which is why they want to, we want to make sure that, that the folks are, are worth investing in. So the, the, your, your work performance will help get you there. Uh, your interest will get you there. And, uh, and it's up to us to support you in doing that. The, the length of time, all of the logistics has still have to be worked out. You know, how long this any individual person would be working with the animal care staff, uh, you know, all of that stuff will have to be worked out, but those are the types of folks we'd, we'd be looking for. And, and you don't have to have already made up your mind. I think this is a key point. You don't have to have already made up your mind that you are going to work in the zoo and aquarium field. The idea is that if you're interested, we'll help show you what it, what it really is. Uh, and then hopefully we've convinced you to come and work with the lions and tigers, you know, uh, but that's, that's, you can't make a decision on your future without having some idea of what these various career choices are. And that's what we're trying to help you with. Yeah. So, so pilot locations to come soon, uh, we'll figure that piece out, but we're looking at some point in 2023, introducing this program to, uh, SSA employees in partnership with Craig and Amzat. Cool. Outstanding. So the, the idea, and this is a, a perfect, I, I feel like it's such a perfect, uh, you, you know how they say if the, if the sun and the moon and the stars are all aligned, you'll, it, things will fall into place. I think, uh, the SSA group reaching out to AMZAP and, uh, Denise having introduced me to Jason and like, none of this is by accident, but it's, it's just, it's just really good timing. And to have a group like SSA who is, uh, willing to invest in their employees kind of lends to just this kind of uh, spark of an idea that a couple of us had out at, at, with AMZAP was just to uh, try to tap into the pool of resource, the pool of potentially interested candidates in our field, the, the zoo and aquarium field. Um, and by that, we mean the, the pool that you guys have you know, have employees. Not every one of your employees is working with SSA on accident. Some of them are working with SSA because they might view that as a route to get into their foot in the door uh, of the zoo, of the aquarium, you know, industry. And so if we tap into that, um, we can tear down some of the barriers that we don't even realize exist, such as the barrier between animal care and our service industries. Um, the idea that animal care is so elite and we're the stuck up ones who don't want anything to do with the people who flip the burgers or the people who, you know, uh, sell the stuffed animals that, that we're somehow above that. We're not. Um, but that's how we're viewed a lot of times, at least at, at my institution. And once people, once the, the, the sales associates, you know, talk to us, and they find out that we're real people. You know, they ask us questions about our families, whatever, how we got into the field. You can almost see this gleam in their eye, like, I can do that. You know, I I can do that. And that's exactly what we want. We want them to realize that they can do this. I worked for the retail version of at our zoo for a little while when I was between internships. And so I know what it's like. I know how you you get those, you get a certain amount of people who are passionate. The other thing that we know, um, I think I know it anecdotally. I, I think um, that most 
I would say the bulk of the employees who work as frontline employees for you guys are, I would wager to say, are people of color. There are probably a fair number of, of white employees as well, but that's how I feel like we can tap into the the pool of candidates of color that we don't even know exists. And you don't know who, who of those people could end up being animal managers, veterinarians, whatever, because That's there's Craig. part into Yeah. Next Craig out there. Yeah. And you're hopefully my boss, right? <laughs> so I hope I hope they I hope they see the the video and say, man, you're on point. And then they give yeah. me a read so I can retire comfortably. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, we wanna we wanna make sure we're tapping into those. And so with y'all's help, we can actually reach those folks. And and by that, I think with the combined minds, those that are sitting on this screen and others who are working with with each of us, you know, independent, we can come up with ways to make that happen where we can we can address certain issues like the financial issues. Sorry, the uh, the insurance issues, the I, I feel like we can address almost every reason that people have to say no to to an idea like this. I feel like with the right people in the room, we can find a way to get to yes. Hey, Craig, I have yep. a question. What, statistically, how many minorities are in the zoo and aquarium space? Oof, it's a really good question. I could only answer you anecdotally on that um, because actually there's a group out there, the Canopy Group is trying to get a handle on that right now. I've seen some of the the uh, inner, 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 excuse me, some of the email chains that they've been on and the, the, the methodical process that they're going through to try to get a, an actual census done. Um, the, but I don't think that there are accurate numbers out there uh, for sure. But what I can do is when I go by my own institution, and so we say, okay, well, we're an institution in Washington, D.C., you know, Chocolate City. We have, I can count on my hands the number of black employees that we have uh, here uh, on the animal care side. Actually, I could count just over one hand. Yeah. There are seven of us on the animal on the animal care side. That's a, of a staff of about a little over eighty. So call it ten percent, twelve percent. You know, um, and that's just the black. Mm -hmm. So we do have a couple of Asian keepers. Um, we do have a couple of Hispanic keepers. Um, we have a couple of Hispanic researchers, a couple of Asian researchers, um, zero, well, I'm sorry, one black researcher. Um, and so the, the emphatic piece to me there is that if I can count the number of people on my, <laughs> on my hands, it's a low number, you know, right. and, and that researcher number really hits me hard. Uh, when I go, man, but I know there are brothers and sisters out there who are doing research, who who would like to do research. Um, but you know, I ran into a young lady. Um, she's a she's a um, an anesthesia. No, I'm sorry. She's a pathologist at Howard Hospital, Howard University yeah. Hospital. Mm -hmm. And she said she ran into me at the zoo, a, a young black woman, and she said to me, "I." had no idea that veterinary medicine and veterinary pathology was a route for us. Uh, so I went human medicine and I said, man, how many people are there out there like that? You know, who just need the example set forth for them. So the numbers are low, 
Um, if I had to put a number on it, I would probably say a quarter or so uh, in my institution. Now, if you transfer that to all AZA institutions, uh, much less all other zoo and aquariums that, that are not necessarily AZA, but there's a lot of those around and geez, the number of them that have zero minority employees exist, you know, um, major to say that, you know, your national zoo, your Denver zoo, your, your San Diego, LA. There's six at the Denver zoo, six at the Denver zoo. Right. So when you can start counting people out on your hands, like, you know, you're, you're, you're low, low, low in numbers and, and it's not, I didn't realize, actually, I was talking to uh, John Azua, uh, mm-hmm. and he's been telling me the, the, that the Denver area is more heavily Hispanic populated than, than people outside of Denver realize. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have known that, you know, I'm, I've, I've been to Denver like once. Right. So it's a, but it's, it's interesting that our zoos that are largely in neighborhoods that are of a lower socioeconomic uh, class and, and are often, uh, you know, like I think of, when I think of it, I think of like the Philly Zoo and things like that, where they're in neighborhoods where you're, you're like, okay, there are lots of people of color right around the zoo. Mm-hmm. How come, why, why don't, why don't we work it? <laughs> you know, um, and when I've, when I've reached out to like our parking staff, blew me away when uh when i reached out to them they're the ones who actually hipped me to the the thought that man we thought you guys didn't want anything to do with us Mm -hmm. and i because i invited them back to see the lions and the tigers and they came and they brought their families and they were clearly proud to work at the zoo um and it's 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 it it just blows my mind that 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 was the thought that they had of us so if we if we can work to change that that'll be one more piece that this kind of a project or this kind of a a program would help to kind of tear some some of those barriers down so craig uh i had the privilege so you mentioned the canopy project survey that's going out we've actually been working in joint with them to to conduct that and i had the privilege of presenting some of those uh results at the diversity summit uh this week and uh so so i want to i want to spit off a couple of facts for I guess, results that we received back. Uh, and I want your feedback on it. So uh, for the most part in the survey, in this survey went out to 300 uh, individuals in AZA that are working in AZA institutions, all different levels from directors all the way down to frontline staff, uh, wide makeup. And what I thought was interesting about the staff or the survey is that the respondents were, there was a fair representation from people that have been in the industry for a long time, so 15 plus years, to uh, individuals that have just joined, so one to five years. Um, So the report came back and said that 92% of the people feel pride in the work that they're doing uh, in their organizations, and they feel that their work work has purpose, right? So they believe in the mission. So we got really favorable numbers there. Where they're, in in that area, both uh, executives and uh, lower level managers, all the staff felt that way. When we started getting down to some of the areas of opportunity, respondents said that executives in AZA institutions are not ready to lead diverse workforces. Mm-hmm. Uh, that less than less than or more than half responded that they felt that they weren't ready to lead diverse workforces. They felt majority felt that uh, 
executive teams do not have succession plans in place, especially those that will uh, include minority workers. And they felt that there was um, a lack of um, a lack of connection with the executive team and the we'll call it the everyday worker uh, in the in the zoo aquarium world. And then finally, they said that there is less upward mobility opportunities for people of color and community. And and actually, the group that ranked the highest there was uh, Asian Asian American or Asian. Uh, felt that they were uh, less likely to advance and more likely to leave the industry than any other demographic, uh, followed by multiracial, uh, which was 30 for, so 40% for Asian, uh, 34% for multiracial, 22% for uh, Black and Americans. And, and the interesting thing was the big disconnect was the executive teams all felt the complete opposite. So when you looked at the positive ratings, uh, they felt like they, they were ready to lead diverse workforces. Mm -hmm. They felt hiding opportunities. They felt like there was a strong engagement uh, between um, not just inner departments, but also just the organization as a whole. So I, mm -hmm. I know a lot that I just spit at you, but I, I just want, I mean, as somebody who's been in the, in the field for so long, one of the, one of the strong, to be honest, one of the strong, more visible black leaders in AZA. What are your thoughts when, when you hear that, that information? Wow. Well, thank you for that. That's a huge compliment. I I, I appreciate that. The the very last uh, comment that you made, I appreciate that. Um, so I I have thoughts. My thoughts are a little bit biased because the National Zoo is the only zoo that I've worked for. Mm -hmm. So the leadership here is the only leadership that I know from an employee-employer relationship. Um, now, having said that, I, I have been around for a while, and so I've worked with a lot of people at other zoos. And so, I, you know, I can get the vibe. I can get the feeling. I, I certainly, um, I can certainly see that as an industry, I do think we, we are, uh, very similar to other industries in that, um, I am sure that the, the vision, the view that we have of senior leaders is what we're shown by our senior leaders, right? So I think a lot of senior leaders want want to be in that space where they can do the right thing and and sure we'll hire anybody we just want to hire the best candidates. What what the senior leaders aren't seeing is that the opportunity isn't there for a lot of our minority employees to feel that they to show that they qualify as as people who are under consideration. So when you have a, a pool of potential hires what I mean by us being like every other industry, you have a pool of, of potential hires and it, I hate to continue to use the same analogy, but you, you've got your, your bowl full of rice and you've got one or two black eyed peas in there. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really that much harder for those two black eyed peas to rise to the top. You know, um, mm -hmm. it's just statistically, there are so many more grains of rice in there. So you're going to end up probably selecting a, a, um, uh, a, a white candidate because that's the bulk of where your pool is. Um, and you know, nobody wants to feel like they're the, um, they're the token, right? You don't want to be tokenized, but at the same time, you want that same job that the other people are after. So I, I definitely feel where our employee group is coming from. 
the the lack of upper mobility and feeling that it's especially that way because you're a minority. Um, one thing that I've always felt, it's not represented in, in polls like this, uh, as I believe I took that poll. <laughs> um, I participated in that. Uh, but one of the things that is not represented there, and it's really going to be hard to capture, is that the number of opportunities that exist. So there are, when people say there's no upward mobility, well, that's because people tend to stay in these positions. Like I use myself as an example. You know, I'm 48 years old. Mm -hmm. I, if I'm lucky, I got another 15 years in me. <laughs> that's what I'm shooting for. But anybody who's in there, mid-20s right now, who's looking to be the curator of lions and tigers at the Nas National Zoo, unless something happens to me, you got a 15-year wait. Yeah. Are you going to be able to wait that long? Um, my guess is going to be no. And then right behind me, my assistant curator is a young white woman. She's five years younger than I am. Yeah. If I were to leave today, chances are really high that she would be my successor. Um, at least she would be my immediate successor, and then she would probably apply for the permanent position. She's going to be the front runner, you know. Um, someone else could come along. There could be a a, a black candidate who uh, I think of uh, Cinnamon uh, at Nashville because she's another uh, she's another black curator. Um, if Cinnamon came up and said, "Hey, I'd I'd like to be you know I'd like to go for that curator role," sure, she could compete. Yeah. But Cinnamon might be happy at her job right now, yeah. you know, and there may be a young and up and coming keeper at another zoo at, at Denver, you know, who mm -hmm. may say, I'd like to go for it, but I don't, they don't, they wouldn't necessarily be able to compete with Lee. Uh, so not, oh, I guess I shouldn't throw names out there, but you know, uh, but it's, uh, so you can reach that out. <laughs> right. So that's one of my thoughts. Those are two of my thoughts there is that it, it is, it's a really competitive field. Um, so what the senior leaders, something that, that struck a chord with me and what you said is that uh, is the plan that senior leaders have in place to to address the long term issue. So sh the short game isn't going to be there right now. Um, it's just statistically not going to be there. And I, I do think of women in our field. So I know part of that uh, that that um, poll that that was sent out through Canopy was also to partly address uh, the gender gap that, that exists. Um, if you think about it, so one of the benefits that I have of being in the field for you know almost 30 years is that when I came in in the mid-90s, there weren't that many women in the field. There were a few female keepers, but nobody mm -hmm. in management was a, was a woman. There were no women in management. I think we had one female curator at that time. She happened to be a black woman, <laughs> Lisa Stevens. She's awesome. She's no longer in the game, but she um, she was the only one uh, at that at that time. And but then as time went on, by the time we got to the 2000s, you saw some of those keepers who were now overwhelmingly female, the keepers, starting to transition into mid management and becoming curators. And then you started seeing some researchers come in, some female researchers come in. This is the, the 2000s to 2010-ish time frame. Now you're seeing several female directors, several female uh, high-level uh, female uh, zoo and aquarium staff members. So that 
but that took a long time. That's that's more that's more than forty years in the making. So I think to to my young brothers and sisters, I would say, be patient and don't give up, because giving up is where we lose ground. Right? Okay. If everybody mm-hmm. fails because we're not getting the management positions. But at the same time, I can't tell people not to go for their goals, not to uh, not to not to put food on their table, you know, and go for the positions that are that are going to ensure that they have the life that they want to lead. So my hope, though, is that we have enough people who are able to stick in the field and stay in the grunt work of the field and keep our field going and transitioning. So I'd love to revisit this conversation right before I retire in about 14 years. (laughs) <laughs> revisit this conversation and see if we've made any headway. Craig, can we can we kind of back up a little bit? Can we back up and just really talk about um, the barriers of black and brown children, you know, even realizing that there are zookeepers? Um, because I grew up here in Denver. I went to Denver Zoo. I didn't go to Denver Zoo with um, my parents, like a Saturday, Sunday thing. Mm. I went to Denver Zoo for a field trip. Uh, it was consistently a field trip that we did starting from, you know, maybe kindergarten all the way until maybe middle school. So, you know, that's how I got to know the Denver Zoo was through um, the field trip. Um, it never dawned on me that there were people behind these animals taking care of these animals. It's not a discussion that it happens at the zoo. It's not a discussion that happens like there's I never seen a zookeeper come to my school and explain to me what they do. Um, So the whole idea of a zookeeper was far and fetched until, you know, maybe I watched Animal Planet. But even when you're watching Animal Planet, um, maybe, you know, late 90s, you know, I'm watching Animal Planet. They're in the wild. They're in Africa. Like, (laughs) they're running free. So if you think about that part of it, like, number one, the barrier access so Denver Zoo or the zoos are typically in urban communities like Philly Zoo maybe it's a field trip right that's the only time that they're going to the zoo um how do we expose that there is even an opportunity to care for these animals right and then we let's also talk about how society has structured um you know which gender particularly gains the interest in animals and that's typically young white males right so you get the little weights little trinkets little animals and you got to be able to afford the expensive books that tell you what this what this animal is and what this animal isn't these are like invisible barriers um that even i'm like even existing even knowing that hey before we start talking about black and brown people getting into management and zookeeping how about we talk about like how we expose them to that that's actually a career field and spark an interest. And I think it needs to happen in the schools and in the urban communities. Um, maybe we start partnering with some social services departments and giving out some some tickets. Uh, Pizza Hut used to partner with Elitch Gardens and you could read these books, right? You read these books mm-hmm. so you can get those tickets. I was reading all the books. I was at the library. I need to get my free ticket. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Acting. So let's talk like even like opening the door or opening the curtain for young black and brown folks and women of color um to even see behind the veil and even know that they're this is a career opportunity for them i I love i love that you brought that up because that is the foundation of of everything that we're talking about uh 
thousand percent. And I hate to, I, I, I won't shift us off of zoos and aquariums for, for too long, but it's really, it's a whole STEM issue. It's, yeah. it's the, that issue exists throughout STEM. So working with the Smithsonian, that's one thing that, that when I have started to peel back the onion, it's not just zoos, zookeeping and zoos, zoos and aquarium work that, that stays. Uh, I love what you said behind the veil, you know, uh, science in general, uh, science careers in general have been this, this shrouded area where it becomes this mythical, mythical thing. I remember when I was in fourth grade, specifically our career day, what do you want to be when you grow up? A scientist. Mm. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, that uh, that's a lot. And, and a lot was told in school was great, put on a lab coat. You're a scientist, <laughs> you know, well, I'm a scientist now. Right. I'm wearing like, Ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't do any of it. You know, so it's a, what does it mean? And, and so, yeah, you're, I think you're right on the nose, Yante, when you say that, you know, we have to expose, first of all, we have to expose people in mm-hmm. our careers, transcends race, transcends gender. People need to know that we exist in these fields, that there are people putting on masks and snorkels and diving into the aquariums in order to get the, the corals, the, the well, the, I pretend like I know what an Aquarius does or an Aquarius does, but you know, to get down and take care of the tanks and to, to do that, they need to know that there are people who are testing the water every day. And in those aquariums, you're talking about teams of people. You, you have to know that there are people preparing food for the, for the animals at the zoo and all this stuff and much less the, the cleaning. Then they need to know that there's more than that because a lot of our work, I, I can't speak for the Aquarius. I, I'd love to to sit down and have a real heart to heart with with somebody who's deep in the aquarium industry to see if it's the same. You talk about the um, you, we'd have to talk about the stigmas that are put on our field. So then you can kind of get into the race thing, and and that's where what Jason said kind of struck a chord with me too about what our what our Asian uh, colleagues have said. Um, our various communities react differently uh, when and these are gross generalizations when you talk about working with animals. What I guess, the comment that I get most, and, and this is all anecdotal, but I've, I've heard it a number of times, black people don't work with animals. That's a white people thing. Yeah. You know, and so I go, yeah. hey, <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time. I, you know, yeah. And I know that there is more than just me. Uh, then I also get from some of our folks, well, I'm in some cases, first generation, these days, more often second generation college student, college parents. <laughs> if I go to college, my family expects me, not just expects me, but I'm, I'm obligated to come out, make money, do something that is going to propel me fast so that mm-hmm. I can support the family, do what nobody else in my family has done and keep it, keep it moving. Um, with my Asian colleagues, one comment that I heard, which makes me think of that movie that that crazy rich asian movies um uh you know i'm not in the asian community so i don't i don't have the foggiest idea except what i've heard from my one or two colleagues that there's a long-standing expectation that you are not supposed to go to school in order to come out and get dirty this a school so that you can come out wearing the suit and that's what's respected um so it the, uh, we can't forget that there are cultural expectations and cultural mm-hmm. stigmas that are often put on on our world, our animal care world. You know, um, the reason I'd love to talk to the aquarists is because for us, 
the the view that most people do have you you did hit it on the head when you said that that we're kept behind the veil yante um people don't see zookeepers unless they see me out in an enclosure and what am i doing out in an enclosure i've got a shovel in my hand i'm picking up poop you know uh and that's what they think i do all day yeah um, so i think it is on our industry's shoulders to make us visible so make us visible to people in general so that little kids, little kids would love to be cops. You know, they want to be firemen. They yeah. want to be uh, uh, zookeepers. They want to be nurses, but they don't have any idea what these people do yeah. for a living. So let's let's ex let's get ourselves exposed out there. Let them know who we are. And then I would say to my, my industry leaders, it's not going to hurt you. It's only going to help you. To throw some diversity in there, throw some color in there when you're at it. The trick that our senior leaders have, in, in my mind, is to then not, not make it always Craig, you know, who's on the who's on the camera. I'm happy to represent for my people, but what about the little black girls out there who want to who would love to be zookeepers, but would love to see? I have some incredible. I have a colleague who's an entomologist. She's PhD entomologist. She's a black woman. You ain't never met a black entomologist in your life. Uh, I don't even know what an entomologist is. What's an entomologist? <laughs> it's, it's a bug doctor. Right? Okay, uh, <laughs> it's a bug doctor. Thank you. So you know, most of us, much less working with with mammals, most of us are gonna be like, you do what? You work with roaches? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know. So so my colleagues are are incredible people. Um, if we just do what again, it go. This is covered by the uh, by the poll that Jason was speaking of. We go to that poll where our leaders say, well, I'd love to do things. Well, I've had several leaders who have no idea that my colleague who who works in, in my in our Amazon department is an entomologist. Yeah. But when we put her on the AMZAP website, I've gotten no less than four or five reach outs specifically to her because they read that she's an entomologist. It's so great. Yeah. That that spawns when we were talking earlier and we we use the term like no one wants to feel like the token, but in order to to gain equity, it's almost like it's like we have to be intentional, right? Like 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 to put her to to say, hey, come on, like this is just to level the, the, the playing field, like, hey, come on, like we need to you need to be right here in the front of the line. Just to provide an even, even playing field. You're a champion. She's got to be a champion. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's both a token and a champion, right? It's not easy to be that that individual because you get pressure from all different sides. But you need those individuals to inspire others to come follow, come join the party. Yeah, I don't. I, I just that 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 word that word token. It, it's like because you're. <laughs> Craig, you're a, you're a, like a trailblazer, right? Not a token, right? Like you have, but you have to be played. Like it's like now when it's in the conversation, we know it needs to happen, and people saying that it will happen. It's like it's no longer, in my opinion, no longer tokenism. It has to be intentionality, right? Like, and and there's there were, there's not going to be a secret about it, but it's like, come on, let's go because it's time. The time is right now. You you guys, man, you guys get it. You guys are hitting it every angle right on the head and i think exactly the exchange that, that you and jason just had tony is um semantics words matter right if you 
if you if my leaders if my senior leaders come to me and they keep saying oh craig you're so good with your lions and tigers we really want you to tell this lion tiger story yeah yeah but my my other colleagues are good with their animals too yeah why is it that you keep coming to me like yeah. just be upfront and yeah. that you want to show some level of diversity because yeah. you need call use use your words so you guys are senior leaders i'm speaking yeah as though I'm speaking to the senior leader group. I, you guys are senior leaders. You're smart people. You know how to massage through words and words yeah. do matter. Tell me that I'm the champion for, I'm I'm being put up there to champion diversity. Yeah. You know? I don't know about that, Craig. I, I don't know about that, Craig, because I, yeah. I don't land very well with the people. So if you come and say, hey, hey, Yate, we're picking you because... You are, you know, you're a diverse person, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, number one, you've undermined the value and contributions that I'm able to bring. Um, and that makes me feel like you are looking at me as that's I'm your token. So that is that that could be like of course we know when words are being smooth and we make our assumptions, but I don't know necessarily, Craig, that that will land up, that you may not get a response from me that is really, I mean, I think the response needs to happen. Like, hey, you know, let's talk about things like tokenization and let's talk about, you know, perception-based bias. Um, and I, I think it's appropriate, and Tony and Jay may disagree with me, but I think it's appropriate and I have no um, issues with calling people to the carpet and giving opportunity to educate and redirect. Right. And I see those, opp those opportunities to educate and redirect. And sometimes it's asking key questions. Right. So, you know, Craig, I mean, you are you are top notch in your field. And so um, but is it are you perceived that way? If someone comes over and says, hey, we want you to come. And I think it's appropriate for you to ask, hey, like, do you value my contribution? Okay. Or, uh oh, look at t let's say something. Go ahead, Tony. And, and and just like Craig, like we've all said, like words matter, right? And you and you use the term calling people to the carpet. In my in my mind, it's like like that entomologist that Craig's people got. It's like, how do I get her to the front of the line? I can call you to the carpet, but how do I how do I make how do I make change? Like so carp calling something to the carpet can it may spur a great conversation, but in the end, what we want is change and action. So it's like it's like with those conversations, it's like how do we how do we spawn not just more dialogue, but change. You could call me to the carpet. I may leave. And Yate, you're pretty smart, right? If I lose that argument or I lose that back and forth, I'm like, man, forget her. I just hold a grudge. But if I'm somehow able to inspire a great dialogue, now the entomologist that, that Craig had me thinking about, she's she's now in the front of the front of the line. So, like like Craig said, words matter, right? I think I think now we're at a place of like words matter, but like results and change matter even more. Right. Like we have to like that's that's how we need to use our words. That's how we need to use the platform. How, however, we need to get there. Like if I need to be if I need to be a little more calculated in my delivery to get that entomologist where she needs to be, let me do that. That's it. That, that's just my different approaches. Right. I mean, exactly. Yeah, Where's that? Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're both. I think you're both on target with that. And. Yante, when I hear when I heard you start to speak, I went, yeah, but here's the conversation has started now. Mm -hmm. So if we can have that conversation, what I feel like happens is when th if this conversation happens and a lot of our white leaders are in the room, they clam up. Mm 
because they don't want to be perceived as being intentionally racist or or intentionally mm. uh offending anybody uh i'm not i'm not sitting in this this group i'm mm. i'm not concerned with offending anybody yeah. i'll know where i'm coming from but at, but at the same time you're you're dead on different people re- will require different approaches delivery um and I, I i've certainly said on multiple occasions even when i have my mzap hat on I don't speak for black people mm. because the minute I say something, there's going to be a line of black people who say, no, <laughs> that's not how I feel. And that's, that's people, you know, but at the end of the day, we're trying to get to a space. I don't mind being the face. And, and I, and another piece of that, that conversation is while I don't mind being the piece of that, the, the face of something is because somebody pointed it out to me very recently. I'm, I am, as I said, on the downward slope in my career. There's not a whole lot I have to lose right now. Mm -hmm. I'm in a really good place where I'm not worried about my promotion potential or anything like that right now. I'm not at a place at all where I can say, take this job and shove it. I need this job. (laughs) Love my job. I I love what I do. I love that I can, I love that I can sit here now though with no fear of, of anybody taking any kind of subtle or overt retribution because I said something um, unless I come out of my mouth with something crazy, you know, <laughs> which which I hope I don't do. But a lot of our aspiring young people of color who would love to sit on a platform and tell you their stories uh, that may be very different from mine um, in terms of, like I said, I've worked at the Smithsonian for my whole career. I've never felt overt racism or me in, in my institution. I'm probably very lucky uh, in, in my conversations with a lot of members of, of the MZAP group, I've realized just how lucky I am. Um, so I can see a lot of people who aren't willing to be called out on and, and be called out to the spotlight uh, for any reason other than this is my, this is, I'm good at my career. So I do think you have to handle it with kid gloves a little bit, Yante, you're right. Mm-hmm. Let's stay on that subject because we're thinking about our audience, right? Especially here at AZA um, and where this, who will hear this podcast. And you've got three diversity practitioners here on the line. I'm thinking about from the perception of the listener who is in leadership is like, okay, so what, how do I handle this? Um, We need to address things like tokenization. Uh, We need to address things like, you know, how would, okay, do I go to Craig and say, hey, Craig, you know, I really want representation in this space. I want you to come out and do this. Or do I, you know, kind of, you know, use some trickery, manipulation, and some wordplay to get that done? And I think the answer is neither of those. I think it's really mindfulness. I think it's just mindfulness. Um, it's mindfulness. I think that everyone should operate from a place of integrity, especially in this space of diversity, right? We're not going to knock you for what you don't know, Right. However, um, there are coaching opportunities, opportunities to really have those conversations. So the conversation I would have with somebody that would approach me that way would be different from somebody who's not a diversity practitioner, right? So it's an opportunity for me to teach and redirect. Um, however, and I've been on, I've been the face of a $160 billion bank on their recruitment materials, on their website. There's a, there's a traveling 84-inch Yante, number two, rolling around the country. So I understand what is what the purpose is that you serve by being that face and that representation. 
um, for that realm of work or that industry or that recruitment model. And that's completely acceptable. And I'm a big proponent for that because it drives diversity initiatives. It helps um, people of color and women come into spaces that maybe they wouldn't know if they'd be accepted. Um, so I'm supportive of that, but I feel like it's important to just have that conversation. Hey, Craig, um, we don't, you know, we, we have an urban community here. We got big school coming in. Um, I really would like you to be front and center today, leading the initiatives and talking to these kids and really showing them that they can be in this space. That's why we have the collection that I named Representation Matters, because representation absolutely matters. That's why we see a rise of women, uh, which, by the way, as women, we are still 99 years behind reaching an equitable place in the workplace period. 99 years before we reach a place of equity, according to studies. So we're this far behind, but we do see a lot of growth of trajectory, but that's because, I mean, like, 40 years ago, we had a female in the 70s. We had a female CEO of public traded company. She's all over the, you know, magazine. It's like, oh, I can be a CEO. I can still wear a blazer dressed like a woman. Okay, you know that whole idea of seeing representation is very important and crucial. But it's important for leadership uh, when you know, kind of removing that tokenization and really saying, hey, these are the benefits. Having that mindfulness of, hey, if I go tap Craig on the shoulder for this. What am I trying to accomplish? And let me communicate to him what I'm trying to accomplish. I think that that is the solution there. No manipulation, Tony. <laughs> I think I think when I say when I when I say manip manipulate your words or wordsmith things out, you just wordsmithed it beautifully. I mean, when I say it, I, I I'm thinking of people coming to me and saying, being upfront with, we want you to represent to this group specifically. Um, because they need to see this. The the representation piece matters. And you're damn good at what you do. You know, you take care of lions and tigers like crazy. Yes, there are other people who take care of lions and tigers really well, but we need your community to see you because you do it really well. The same way that I need my, uh, my young black women to see, or my young women to see a young woman doing what they want to do doing it well. Um, so I think it's picking and choosing who you're going to and how you approach them is very important. Um, I think sometimes people just clam up when when we hit any kind of a, an issue that's sensitive like race, you know, gender, uh, we start talking, we clam up and we go, well, I can't say this around the LGBTQs because they'll get mad at me and label me, you know, uh, I'll be hate criming people before you know it. When all I want to do is help you. Now that I have one, I have a trans employee, a trans animal keeper who works with me. I want him to go and talk to the LGBTQ groups because he's going to resonate with them a lot stronger than I will. You know, um, now if if I don't have any trans employees or or out uh, gay gay employees or LGBTQ employees, I will talk to the group. Uh, but it will be so much more effective if I could get someone who they identify with or can it, it can resonate with them. So I think um, my my director is a woman now. Uh, she was one of my mentors as, as we as we went through. 
as we were starting AMZAP, she threw everything she had behind AMZAP. Mm. And uh, as she did that, she said to me, you know, I can't identify because she's a white woman. I can't identify with the problems and the barriers that you're facing. And I said, well, yes, you can. Uh, you can't identify exactly, but you can understand, you can empathize with with what with some of the issues that that we've experienced because there's no way you go through your career as a woman in this field without having experience and feeling a certain kind of way um you know if you if you tell me that i i won't believe you you know um but it might it might be something subtle might be you know you got your idea stolen from you or something like that and used by by a man who is in a position of power Whatever the case might be, or it might be something overt. You might have suffered some harassment at some point or, or worse. Um, and so, you know, if we can look inside of ourselves and, and try to put ourselves into the shoes of the people who we're trying to, to resonate with and trying to connect with, you can't know what it's like to be me. Mm. So don't assume that you do. Have a conversation with me. Start it out. Mm. You know, you want somebody to talk to your group about lions and tigers. Mm-hmm. More than happy to do that. Is there anything else? Is there yeah. is there something else that you're trying to get at? Is there mm-hmm. you know? And so I would like to be talked to that way. Mm-hmm. Some other people might not. So, but it requires conversations. That's what I think our our senior leaders sometimes are missing is that it's never going to be a one time conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people down at the at the boots on the ground level who don't even know their director's name. You know, the director may feel like they connect with them with the boots on the ground people because they may have met one or two grounds workers, one or two animal keepers. You've never been by my area. You've never seen me working. You've never... So putting the face, putting yourself there, and that takes a lot. That takes commitment, you know, from a leader at at any level uh, in our institutions because that means... That's a lot of time. It's a commitment to come down and and see who's who. You don't have to remember my name necessarily, but you know the the remembering my face and and have that you'd had a conversation with me is super important. And from there, we we start to build a, a little bit of a relationship. You get to know me, uh, and I'm not. I don't feel like I'm just a a face in the sea of people out there. So that that might be if I were to to chat to senior leaders it would be you you have to uh, a lot of senior leaders are very keen on saying but i have an open door policy they can go see me anytime they want but that's the king on the castle you know i'm not coming up to your office i don't dare set foot in the administration office that's for the elite you can come down to my neighborhood you come Mm -hmm. down to see me yeah and how easy would that be you know i think of things like you know, uh, um, I, I will, I will say it and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not sucking up to her, but, um, my director will sometimes come down and just like bring coffees down for whoever's working that day in one area or another. That's, that's impactful. That's the mm-hmm. thing that starts to build relationships and then you become a, a little bit more trusted. You don't have to do a whole lot except spend your time. And I know that's a big ask because the director's time, the the senior leader's time, is a valuable commodity. Yeah, you, you know what? We actually spent a lot of time at the diversity summit uh, talking through that and just 
leadership humanizing themselves through the same thing that you just said, like coming down out of that ivory tower and spending some time with folks and really getting to know them. So it, it's good that you're reinforcing that that statement, that comment, that action. And I wasn't even there. So I didn't know that. Even there. Yes. <laughs> I think one good move that, that zoos and aquariums are making, and it, it sounds like very similar to what SSA has done uh, with bringing you on Yante as, as a, a diversity officer. I'm sure I didn't get your title exactly right there. Uh, now go ahead and speak it. You hear that, Tony Smith? <laughs> yeah. It's creating. We're following other industries and creating an intentional uh, department that focuses on diversity because of that whole clamming up issue. Most of most of the people who work in this field in particular, we're so focused on animal stuff that we're not thinking about the other issues, the human issues that go into our workforce. And so when we hire people who, it's not just HR people, but people who are thinking specifically about the human element and how to increase the value of the human element that changes the ball game, and so we're seeing people like Curtis, uh, you know, coming into our into our field, who are they are the diversity folks. They are the people who are helping to make sure that our ship stays steered in the right direction. And we're seeing more and more people come up like that. So, so I think that's a big step in the right direction. <laughs>